anticipation and anxiety go hand in hand. Uh, I'm old enough to remember an old ketchup commercial where they, they showed the word anticipation and it was like the Heinz 57 ketchup. You remember that? And it was so thick and it just took forever, forever to come out. Now, ketchup bottles are one thing, but life is another. Anytime that we are anticipating something, there comes anxiety. And I would like you to think back of, in your life, some times of, of great anticipation and the anxiety that those anticipations brought. Whether it was the anxiety of trying to sleep on Christmas Eve, not that anybody could do that, especially the parents, and then uh, the night before your graduation, maybe you can remember that, and how exciting that chapter was, but not knowing what you had uh, ahead. Also, uh, maybe uh, you had your first big date, or maybe your first wedding, or maybe even uh, a job interview, or a big surgery, or something like that. Uh, you may be living even in one of your big moments today, and I, I don't know what that may be, but with great opportunity comes anxiety. And we pray for God to give us opportunities. And we know that God is with us, but still, there is some level of anxiety in our lives. Think of an Olympic athlete. An Olympic athlete who trains for years, and then months, and then weeks, and then days, until finally they compete in the Olympics. Did you know in the sport of basketball alone in the Olympics is that your chances of making it are 1 in 45,487. That is your chances. That's not only in the men's basketball, but the women's basketball as well. Now, if you take some of the other ones that are not so popular, the, the statistics go down, but still... Statistics don't mean anything when you're driven and when God has called you to do something. But though those statistics can be discouraging, stop athletes from trying to attain their goals. It doesn't stop them from being driven. And some fail, but some succeed and win the gold medal. But what does that mean to you and I? God, God's promises, God's promises that are found in this book, God's promises are much more valuable than gold. As we said before, gold is not a hot commodity in heaven. It's used for asphalt. Okay? So gold will, will burn and will fade away. But those things that we do for the Lord will last forever. And they add value. God's promises add value to our life, not only in the eternity, but in heaven but also in, in, on the earth right now. And James says it this way in his book. He says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The reason people are bored with church and people are not living their faith and they're bored with their faith, they have lost sight of the crown. They have lost sight of the prize. The crown of life that awaits us when we go to heaven. But yet, we still must move on. We can possess God's promises, but it will take a few things. It will take endurance, it will take trust, and it will take determination. Uh, David K. Campbell wrote this. He said, after hearing a message at a Bible conference on how to cope with discouragement, three people greeted the speaker. 
There was a young mother who had not slept the previous night because her husband had come home saying that he wanted a divorce. And another, a pastor whose teenager daughter was rebelling against God. And there was a Christian worker whose husband had entered the hospital for treatment for a terrible tumor. And the pastor said that was talking to these folks, the trouble is, is that we are facing problems that we cannot solve. So how do we find God's promises? How do we go forward in our faith when there are so many things that are coming against us? And every one of you in here, I'm sure, we all look perfect today. Hey, again, like, like I say a lot from the pulpit, you look good this morning. You're dressed up, you're fancy, everybody's hair is looking real pretty. And, and we, we put on this facade sometimes that everything is okay. But folks, we're in a hospital for sinners. Everything is not okay. We're sinners, and, and we fall short of God's glory every day. We are not okay. We all have trials and tribulations. Your trial might not seem big to me, but it's big to you, and vice versa. But as we see that, the, the pastor stated that the customer I must sell, or the, the exam that I must take, the debt that I must pay, those in-laws I must endure, that habit I must break, this marriage I must save, we, these are statements that everybody has today. These are things that I have to get done. All of these and more happen because why, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen in this world? Because we live in a broken and cursed, fallen world. The world is acting like it's supposed to. It's under the curse of sin. That is why we have horrendous things happening even in our own backyards in communities. But because of this curse, we are going to be faced with obstacles that we cannot figure out. We're going to have to either deal with them, we're going to have to handle them on our own. Or God places us in times of weakness because He wants us to have Him for strength. The battles that we fight, listen folks, the battles for those who are believers, the battles that we fight are not our own. They are God's. The problem is, is that we take them upon ourselves. The problem is we want to figure it out ourselves. It's not that we'd be so brazen to say, Oh God, I don't want any help with this. Of course we want God to help us. We'll pray for it. We'll ask the preacher or a Sunday school teacher or a friend to pray for it. But yet after we get that out of our mouths, please pray for so-and-so. Again, it's just wrenching our hearts. And we can't figure it out. I'm not speaking of someone who doesn't go through that. I do go through that. That's, that's human nature, but that's not God's design. And so, as we look at our passage today, if we hope to rise above the obstacles that are placed in our life because God wants to teach us dependence upon Him, if there is any hope to rise above those things, we must claim God's promises for our lives. And to do that, we must trust Him and follow Him. As we pick up this passage, Israel is beginning the first leg of their journey into the promised land. Their ancestors, uh, God has promised Abraham and all those that had gone before them that he would take them into the promised land. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years until now. Finally, the time has come. And just like those before him that faced a Red Sea, now they are facing a Jordan River. And the people of Jericho, they have to get through. This would be a battle that God would have to fight for them. 
And you know what the great part about that is? He does. Now, now I'd like to tell you as a preacher, all you've got to do is read this Bible and do what it says, and everything's going to work out great. It will, but it ain't going to be easy. It's not easy. Hey, let me tell you what. If living the Christian life was easy, everybody would be doing it. They would be selling it as an infomercial for nine payments of nine ninety nine, non refundable, guaranteed. If you don't like it, send your Bible back. It's hard. It's tough. It doesn't make sense. It puts us at our wit's end. But folks, God's promises are to prosper us. And as we look at Joshua this morning, we can find hope in God's help to get you across your unavoidable river this morning. The first thing we see is that possessing God's promises begin with knowing Him. If you're going to possess a promise of God, you have to know it. Well, how do you know God's promises? Was it, did someone put a chip in your head and tell you that? No. There are many people that are walking along, living a life oblivious to God and oblivious to the promises, and they wonder why they have no hope. They wonder why they can't find any stability in their life, and they wonder why they are just wandering because they haven't sought God's promises. Let's read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. It says, Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left Acacia Grove and arrived at the banks of the Jordan River. So, where they camped before crossing. So, it took him about a day to go from where they were to, from Achaia Grove to the banks of the Jordan River. A day's trip. Now, this is not five people in an RV. This is not a, a car packed with people. This is millions of God's people walking across land, walking and taking their livestock and everything that they own. A ragtag group of, of immigrants that are just going across and following Joshua. And it took them a whole day to go roughly 20 miles. Well, no, excuse me, roughly 10 miles. And so what we see here is that they have done this. And it says they left the Kea Grove and came to the banks of the Jordan River where they camped before crossing. Three days later... So Joshua gave him some time to rest. Three days later, the Israelite officers went to the camp, giving these instructions to the people. When you see the Levitical priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, move out from your positions and follow them. Since you have never traveled this way before, they will guide you. Stay about a half a mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the Ark. And make sure you don't come any closer. The Ark was the Ark of the Covenant. It had many things inside of it. It had Aaron's staff. It had a bowl of of myrrh. I mean, excuse me, of manna. And it had the Ten Commandments in there. And it was symbolic. Wherever the Ark was, that was where God was. God was with them. When they would set up the tabernacle, they would put the Ark in the Holy of Holies that had a seed on it to where they would sprinkle the sacrificed blood of animals to atone for the sin of the people. This was a serious deal. This was not just a spirit stick that a group would hold up. This was, in their minds, God Himself going before them to claim this land. 
Folks, when God begins to pour into our lives, we must make sure that we have the mold according to his design. I don't know about you, but years ago, man, I, I don't know where you could, probably, you could probably find these at like online or Pinterest or something like that. But when I was a kid, we had something very simple. It looked like an ice cube rack, but it was like popsicles, you know, and you could put a little plastic stick in it and pour the Kool-Aid in it. Come back a little, what, little later. You had homemade popsicles. Mm-mm-mm-mm, good. But folks, what would it look like if I would have just poured that Kool-Aid into the freezer and hope a popsicle came out? No, I would get my tail corrected because I made a mess in the freezer. Folks, God wants to pour into your life. But folks, you've got to get the popsicle mold ready. If you want God to pour into your life, you got to know where to put it. Every one of us in here have probably got a room or a place in our house or a, a place in our office or maybe even we pay people to store it or we got some place where we just put our junk. You know, because we don't have a place to put it. Don't let that happen with your spiritual walk. God is pouring into you. And by reading God's Word, it gives you a filing system of how to process it and where to place it. How do I know that? Because it says in God's Word that that is the case. God has given you and I His instructions through His Word, the Bible. And I don't remember where I heard this. Maybe it was from some of you who were just growing up. But the Bible, I've always heard it can be an acronym for basic instructions before leaving earth. Get out your instruction manual. Get out your basic instructions and understand how to live this life that we live in. 2 Timothy 3.16, I put that verse up for you and gave you a, a hint of what it says. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It sets the mold for what God wants to pour into your life. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. That's really hard for someone who has to always be right, isn't it? But I'm telling you what, this can correct us every time. We need to quit reading the Bible and hoping to get something out of it. We need to let the Bible read us and tell us what we need to change. You don't need a preacher for that. You don't need a counselor for that. You don't need some expert in your own. You can read. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can read this for yourselves. And we also see in Psalm 119, verses 1 through 3, joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey His laws and search for them with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in His paths. I can give you a simple assignment that will transform your life. That Nine times out of ten, everybody in here has got a Bible. And if you don't, we will make sure that you have one. And in most Bibles, you can go into the back of the Bible, and it's, got, it's called a concordance. And you can look up words and subjects that you're dealing with, and you know what? It'll give you scriptures to read about it. You don't need a preacher to tell you what to do. You don't need to Google it. You can open your Bible right here. There's Bible apps, or if you need to, Google something and say, what is a good Bible verse for this that I'm going through? And you know what? You'll find it. 
search the scriptures like it was a lottery ticket. Like you were going to get your winning number. And make sure that, that you build your life on it. Because if, God is, if you want God to pour into your life, it's got to go somewhere. What happens on your roof if you don't have gutters? What happens? It runs off the roof and it, it creates divots in your yard. And the water runs somewhere and you lose it. I know some people, they've got gutters and then they actually got these big old buckets that catch it. And they use it for like watering plants. It's pretty cool. Folks, when God is pouring into our life, we have to have a place to put it. And then also when possessing God's promises, we always have an obstacle to cross. These Israelites have come to the Red Sea. And notice what it says. It says that you need to purify yourselves. Folks, if God wants to do a work in your life, you must purify yourself to get yourself ready because God doesn't do dirt. God doesn't do sin. Yes, he will clean you up and make you holy, but it's one thing when someone is lost to come to the Lord. God sees them as they are. He cleans them up and he changes them through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. It's another thing for a believer to have this nice clean clothes of the Holy Spirit and wallow in the mud. He still loves us. But he wants us to purify ourselves and to get ready for what he's going to do. Now, back then, purifying yourselves meant actually that they would take a bath because back then water was a a pretty tight commodity to come hold of. And they didn't really do a whole lot of personal bathing. So this was going to be a special time for them that uh, they were going to get the water. They were going to take baths. They were going to get a, a clean change of clothes, something that we take for granted every day. Even this morning as I was taking my shower, I took it for granted that when I turned a little spigot, water would come out. And that I had clothes to put on my back. These people didn't have a lot of that. And then it said that married couples were to focus more during these next three days instead of intimacy with one another. They were to focus on intimacy with God. So the imagery here is that if we are going to have God take us through the rivers that are in front of us, we must know Him, we must understand His instructions, and we must purify ourselves to be ready for what He is going to do. Because this changing of the clothes symbolized a new beginning for them. The second thing that we see is that we possess God's promises with his help. We possess God's promises with his help. I once saw a father the other day helping their small child get a drink of water. It was really cute. The, the child was not tall enough to, to reach the water fountain, so the father went and picked up the child and kind of put his knee up on the water fountain and rested the child on the knee, and boy, that child was just lapping up that water. The child couldn't get to it by itself because couldn't get to the water by itself because there were no steps. And so the father lifted him up again, put him on his knee, and said, get all you want. Folks, there are things that God has put in our life that are out of our reach. But he has promised that he will pick us up. Hold us. Put us on his knee and say, drink. I know you're thirsty. Drink. But we see in verse, let's read verses, uh, first verse 6, chapter 3, it says, 
In the morning, Joshua said to the priest, lift up the Ark of the Covenant and lead the people across the river. And so they started out and went ahead of the people. Folks, they're going. They are heading towards the river. Just like their ancestors headed toward the Red Sea. Nothing's happening yet. They are heading towards the river. Folks, it takes a lot of faith to trust God and head toward the very obstacle that's psyching you out. That's making you anxious. But he says, walk towards it. And then we pick up after verse 6, we go to verses 9 through 11. So Joshua told the Israelites, come and listen to what the Lord your God says. Today you will know that the living God is among you. Today you will know that the living God is among you. Folks, I want to reiterate the fact God is alive. God is living. He's living through the hearts of His people. If you go back to all of these other deities that are proposed to be great people, you go back to their graves, there's bones. You go back to them and, and it's, there's not alive. It's, it's always in these other religions and cults, it's about people demanding stuff from you. But this is the one, one religion, the one denomination... Where God says, it's not what you give to me, but what I give to you. And I am alive. I want you to know, if you are facing your Jordan River today, and you think that it's too late, that God is not hearing you, He is alive. Wake up and listen. Sorry, I got excited. So Joshua told the Israelites that God is alive. And he says... Today you will know the living God is among you. He will surely drive out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. He will wipe all of them out ahead of you. Look, the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord of the whole earth, will lead you across the river. Folks, everyone is led by something. Who or what do you let lead your life? Is it your family? Is it your job, your checkbook, your health? Or maybe even the opinion of others? I have this question for you. I call it a life question. Something just to get you to think that you can write down or kind of make a mental post-it or whatever it might be. And what, who or what do you let lead your life? Who or what do you let lead your life? And if you find out, and if you admit who or what is leading your life, my next follow-up question would be, well, where are they taking you? Where are they taking you? Is it what you think about before you go to bed? Is it what you think about when you first wake up? Is it where you spend most of your time, money, And it consumes your thoughts. That's the thing that's leading you and taking you by the hand. Maybe willingly or unwillingly. But my question is, whatever is leading you in your life, are you happy where it is taking you? You may say, God is leading me, but I do not like where he's taking me. That is an option. I've been there before, but have heart. If he's leading you somewhere, that means that he has got your hand and he is leading you and he is taking you where he wants you to go. If you are in uncharted waters that are above your head, he's got you and he's holding you. And though you are just trying to tread water, he knows exactly where he's taking you. 
let him lead. The Israelites, they were heading, they had a war ahead of them. They had to fight these people to get them out of Jericho, yet they still trusted him to lead. So why was God using the Israelites to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan? It's very simple. The, the, the Canaanites were very deprived. Were depraved. They were sinful people. We learned last week a lot about it when we studied about Rahab and her occupation and what the people thought of her and what, what the people thought of God. We knew that it was a deprived place. So God wants to drive all of that out because, folks, He doesn't want His people to go to a place that has sin in it. He wants, to, he, he wants for them to start over because a lot of times what would happen is if countries wanted to overthrow other countries, they would send a group of their people just into that, that country and they would intermarry. They would influence them in their worship. They would get them to start focusing on false gods. And before you know it, time after time, the Israelites would deny God because they got sidetracked from people. God wants them to be in a perfect place without sin. And that's what he wants for you in your life as well. But just remember, the obstacle ahead of you is meant to grow you, protect you, and draw your dependence upon God. Well, the third thing that we see is that possessing God's promises will always require a step of faith. Possessing God's promises will always require a step of faith. We see verses 14 through 17. So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan, and the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead. It was the harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the Ark touched the water, the river's edge, the water at that point began backing up a great distance away to a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan, and water below that point flowed onto the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over their town to Jericho. Folks, the, the, the Israelites had already traveled 10 miles from Achaia Grove to the Jordan River. And so now here they come to a river. And, and I want you to understand something when we talk about the Jordan River it says here that it was a time of harvest and it was overflowing. I think sometimes we diminish the significance of the Jordan River and we think, well, my, my problem now is a Red Sea problem, not a Jordan River problem. But let me tell you something. The Jordan River, when it comes to the harvest time and it's overflowing, it goes to about a mile wide. That's how wide it gets. And when it gets flooded like that, have you seen these whitewater rapid shows where they have class three and class four waves? Listen, I, if, if God ever gets me into a rafting boat again on one of those rivers, he's going to be doing something. Because I've almost died enough trying to do that. But I'll tell you what, I want no part of getting into a river with swift water. Because one slip of the foot and you will be gone. This River was not as big as the Red Sea, but it was just as dangerous. So don't think that this is whatever you're going through. Ah, this is not a big problem, folks. If it's a problem to you, it's a problem to God, and He cares about you and wants to get you through this. And so, the other thing that we see is that 
God uses your obstacles to make His power known through others. Verses 21 through 24 of chapter 4. We're going all the way over to chapter 4. Then Joshua said to the Israelites, In the future, your children will ask, What do these stones mean? Then you can tell them, This is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. For the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes and kept it dry until you were across and did just as he did at the Red Sea when he dried up until we had all crossed over. He did this. Why did he do this? He did this so that all the nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful and so you might fear the Lord your God forever. Let me give you a real quick fast forward. The ark was carried by the priest in the middle of the Jordan River. And so this million plus march made it across. And the crossing of the Red Sea for the Israelites back 40 some years ago was a picture of them getting out of the bondage of sin. They were coming out of Egypt, coming out of slavery. But now we see the Jordan River which pictures claiming the inheritance that Christ gives us. And it talks in there, you can go back and read how they built two altars. Anytime, a lot, or anytime that God moved in the lives of, of God's people, they would build an altar. And so they would take 12 stones and they would place them around representing the different tribes and how God worked in them. So they put one on the other side of the shore where they got there. But then they went down to the ark and they put one where the ark was. So when the ark got out of the river, whoosh, somewhere in that river, there's a, a, uh, an altar of 12 stones showing God's faithfulness there. And then we see that we know God through his work in our Jordan rivers. The Israelites' faith and obedience was rewarded with their own Red Sea experience. They had heard from their ancestors what it was like to walk across a dry bed while water was just standing up like a wall. They had their own dry experience. Folks, let me ask you something. There have been times in your life, maybe not today, Maybe with not your, what you're dealing through, but there have been Jordan River moments and Red Sea moments in your life. Go back and look at the altars and remember how God worked in those situations to give you assurance today that God still wants to work in your life. <laughs> so for the people that love God here, they've had their own Red Sea experience, but <laughs> the people of Jericho... They've got one more reason to be scared, don't they? (laughs) They heard about the Red Sea. Now they see these millions of people coming across the Jordan River. I think they're scared. Not scared, but scared. Ruh-roh. Yep, I like the Old Testament. Let me close with this. How do you possess God's promises for yourself and your life? Here's a quick list. Claim it. God has given you promises in His Word. Claim it. Believe and stand on it. Pray for it. And when I say pray for it, I don't mean just saying, God, this is what I want. Like a Santa Claus list. Pray for it. Worship Him. And wait for Him to answer. Go for it. 
Folks, you've got to get your feet wet. You've got to take that first step of faith. And then finally, watch in all as God works. Some of you, it might be instant. Some of you, it might be generations before you see that happen. But God has not forgotten you. You are His. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were treasured upon Him. You must not let your anxiety over your present or future situations keep you from claiming the promises God has for you today and then now. And then for some, God works in the lives of His children. Maybe He's not working in your life is because you are not a child of God. You have never accepted Jesus Christ into your life as your personal Savior and Lord. You have never said that I am a sinner and I am in need of saving. God loves you enough to send the Son Jesus that He loves you just as you are, mess and all. And it's, when it comes to salvation, it's not about you crossing the river. Jesus already crossed that river, and He's come to you. If you'd like to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, or if you'd like prayer for the river you're going through, maybe you'd like to come to the altar, or talk with a friend, or, or come pray with me, or, or whatever it may be, this is the time for you to do that. Maybe you'd like to join this church, or be baptized, or, or just again, pray where you are. We're going to have a time of invitation and ask that if God is moving you to take that step of faith and get your feet wet. Would you please stand?